last night, I dreamed I went to Manderley again. Daphne du Maurier, Rebecca. to Books in the Freezer, a podcast dedicated to the deliciously disturbing world of horror fiction. I'm your host, Stephanie, and joining me on this special episode is author of the gothic YA novel, House of Salt and Sorrows, Erin Craig, to have a chat about our Rebecca feelings with the adaptation coming out. So welcome to the show, Erin. Thank you so much. I'm so, so, so excited to be here. I've loved this podcast, and I was just delighted when I saw your name in my inbox. (laughs) House of Salt and Sorrows was one of my recommendations for our gothic episode because it is just like that perfect like gothic story. But for those people who did not listen to that episode, can you tell us a little bit about House of Salt and Sorrows? Sure. So it's a YA um, gothic reimagining of the 12 Dancing Princesses. When I started uh, writing it originally, I w- had intended it to be a retelling of Annabelle Lee by Edgar Allan Poe. Um, and so I knew I wanted to like really immerse the, the world into this gothic, creepy, atmospheric house vibe. Um, but I wasn't quite sure where to go with the story because really, truly, it just needs to be Edgar Allan Poe's poem. Like, <laughs> there's not enough story for an entire book. So So as I was um, kind of mulling over things and trying to make some stuff work, it occurred to me that if I smushed it with the Grimm's Brothers, the 12 Dancing Princesses, everything would be great. And so it tells the story of the 12 Thalmas sisters. Four of the sisters have died before the book begins. Everyone assumes it's been natural causes. One sister dies of the plague. One accidentally falls down a set of stairs because it's gothic romance and so everyone needs to fall downstairs. (laughs) One girl might have killed herself in a bathtub because she's, you know, melancholy over her sister's deaths and then uh the fourth sister eulalie fell off of a cliff so very gothic very yeah <laughs> and it's that death that um makes our uh, main character annalee thomas slightly suspicious that maybe all of the deaths that seem very natural at first um there's actually something more sinister and intentional about them and so she kind of sets off to discover what's going on with her sister's deaths and um will any more of the sisters die and as all of this is going on the girls discover a magic doorway that can take them all over the kingdom to these very extravagant beautiful balls and so they sneak off you know they've been in mourning for all of these years they sneak off every night to go dancing with all these handsome suitors and wear these beautiful gowns and everything and um it starts to occur to Annalie that maybe not all of these people are who they think they are and might not be the best people to be dancing with and um Lots of more gothicness ensues throughout <laughs> the book. <laughs> oh man! Uh, well, I mentioned it on the episode, but yeah, I was not familiar with the Twelve Dancing Princesses story at all. But I remember when the book came out and there was a lot of buzz about it people saying like I love that story and I was like where have I been how does everyone know this story but me 
The only reason, like, I, I think I read it, I must have read it, like, when I was a kid. Um, My mom was a Girl Scout troop leader for my sister's troop, and they would do, like, these little, like, fairy tale skits that they'd take to, like, libraries and nursing homes and whatever, and um, because I was the older, taller sister, I would always get roped into playing, like, the boy parts that no one wanted to play <laughs> in it, and that was, like, their big thing one year, and I remember my mom, like, spray painting gold and silver trees in the backyard and, like, throwing glitter everywhere, I think the glitter was in our yard for like years after um but I played the soldier in it and wore this like terrible gold lame vest and like these awful green pants but I that's actually how <laughs> the story came about I saw some pictures of me and I had totally forgotten about it and when I saw those I was like oh that with Annabelle Lee it's gonna be great <laughs> and gods and murder and mayhem and and that that'll all just flow really well together <laughs> And it also does have some strong horror elements. I'm thinking of like a few bathtub scenes and I was like, this is like perfect. This is horror-y. Yay! <laughs> yeah, I definitely, I wanted to to embrace the Edgar Allan Poe-ness as much as I could. And so taking like the ordinary and making it just absolutely terrifying is, is really fun for me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it also has a really good atmosphere. It did feel like it was just like the aesthetic that I like, like that cold seaside. That is like my <laughs> aesthetic, like that uh, House Greyjoy on Game of Thrones. Like I am too soft to survive in that kind of environment, but I love it. I mean, they they drown their king to like crown them. That's a little too harsh for me. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> oh, it was so much fun doing like the research for it and like I'm I'm ridiculously obsessed with Pinterest and so like, you know, you click on one and then there's suddenly twenty more pictures and then suddenly it's two thousand photos and when I um was doing some of this stuff with the cover art, my editor was she was like, Oh, we really love this. Can you maybe like make us a separate folder with like maybe a twelfth of the photos that you've got, just so our, our, our cover designers aren't on Pinterest all by it. I was like, yes, I, can, I will do an abridged version. A mood board of a mood board. Absolutely. <laughs> Turned into like a mood filing cabinet. <laughs> Boards are not big enough. So where did your love of the gothic start? I always really loved scary stuff as a kid. I don't know why. Um, my mom kind of always, on one hand, she would tell me these really awful, terrible, horrible stories um, for, like, bedtime things. And then, like, she'd make a very happy ending. It would always be, like, you know, the witch that was in the woods that was scratching at your window turned out to be, like, Batman coming to save you or something. Um so she would tell me these awful things, but then when I would go to the library to, like, check out scary books, she wouldn't let me. So I would always try to, like, sneaky check out things, and I loved, like, scary <laughs> stories to tell in the dark, and then Goosebumps was, like, everything when I was a kid, and so, but I always had to, like, sneak them home from the school library. And I remember, like, that was kind of it for a while, um, just a lot of R.L. Stein. and then in... It must have been sixth or seventh grade. We read um, The Mask of the Red Death. And I was just fascinated. Like this horrible mansion up in the mountains and the terrible plague and the beautiful ball. And it's it's very um, House of Salt and Stars, I guess. Um, but I loved the idea of all of this and like that we could read it for school and it was sanctioned and my mom could not get mad at me <laughs> for reading it. Yay. Um, and I, I loved that. And I think that was kind of my, my stepping stone into everything. Like I, I read a lot of Poe that year. I loved Annabelle Lee. It's, it's always been my favorite of the poems. Um, but I love the Telltale Heart. And uh, it, I think it kind of just leaped off of there. And then it was just like everything I could get my hands on. <laughs> 
Oh my gosh, yes. I I think there's just something in that like middle school curriculum when they introduce Edgar Allan Poe that like a certain breed of student is like, this is my moment. <laughs> this is what I have been waiting for. And that like all of the paper, like homework was a joy. Like it was, yeah, it was a wonderful, wonderful year. <laughs> so we mentioned this a little before recording, but when did you first read Rebecca? I think it was sometime in high school. And I have to admit the first time I read it, I did not like it like at all. <laughs> um, I like, I think I was very, I don't even remember what I was, I think I'd graduated probably to Stephen King at that point. Um, and so like, I was, I liked the fast contemporary, like, this is horrible and gory and raw. And like, this was like, where are the ghosts? Like, you, this is supposed to be this great ghost story. Like, where am I being scared at? And I did not appreciate it at all. Um, and so when I read it later on in life, um, so full disclaimer, I <laughs> identify with Mrs. Uh, the second Mrs. De Winters a lot later on in life. Um, my husband is nothing like Maxim whatsoever, preface everything with that. Um, but I, I married a guy who was about, uh, he's 12 years older than me, and I, I am a second wife. And so when I was rereading it the second time, like there was all these things that were like, oh, well, that makes sense. Oh, that's, yeah, I can see that. Oh, <laughs> Um, my husband is nothing like Maxim Um, but it was just I think I identified it in a way that was I appreciated all of her stuff a lot more reading it from that viewpoint but yeah I I loved now the second you know second third fourth whenever times I've however many times I've read it I love the prose I love the world building and I think I've my taste in horror has changed a lot since high school Aaron read it and was expecting like all these great you know ghosty shivers up the spine moments um, I like that quiet horror and like the psychological tension and like, I'm, I'm hoping like when we see that this new Netflix version, I hope they don't go with like the jump scares and everything. Cause the, the, I think the slow, quiet, burning dread of horror is so much more satisfying now. <laughs> I agree. So I read this for the first time, I think like three or four years ago. And it was like, after I had a booktube channel. So I think a lot of us got together and had a Voxer chat and we all did like this big group buddy read and made our way through it. So I think going through it and hearing other people's reactions and thoughts as I went on like helped me because I think at first I probably would have been like this was built to me as a ghost story. (laughs) Like there is not a lot going on. This is just about like a mousy woman. Like I don't like what am I supposed to do with this? (laughs) But yeah I think getting people's feedback and like pointing out things I didn't notice really helped and I mean having read it like that last act is like i'm sorry what (laughs) where did this come from (laughs) this is insane also this will be full of spoilers excellent (laughs) okay so the goodreads synopsis for rebecca reads the novel begins in monte carlo where our heroine is swept off her feet by the dashing widower maxim de winter and his sudden proposal of marriage orphaned and working as a lady's maid she can barely believe her luck And it is only when they arrive at his massive country estate that she realizes how large a shadow his late wife will cast over their lives, presenting her with a lingering evil that threatens to destroy their marriage from beyond the grave. (laughs) Right? (laughs) So going into it, we start off in like Monte Carlo for like a bit. And I think I wasn't expecting that because it starts with like, I dreamed of Manderley again. So I thought we're starting there this is where we are starting but we don't we start with her being this lady's maid and we kind of get to see how she is as a person with her 
I forget who her Mrs. Van Hopper. <laughs> yeah, and she's an obnoxious American because of course. <laughs> Americans. <laughs> All of Antina and Europe. <laughs> and then yeah, she meets up with Maxim and they date for like two weeks before he proposes. And it's such like uh that proposal is so Marry me, you little fool. Like, no. Just sets it up. (laughs) Oh, oh, no named. No named narrator. (laughs) No named narrator. Uh, Well, I mean, I think we see throughout the story that I think her biggest issue is a lot of uh, confidence issues. Um, And especially since she, we learn that she's kind of penniless. Like, she doesn't really come from anything. She has nothing to offer. So I think the idea that a man like Maxim is even, like, looking at her at all, let alone, like, you know, whisking her away to this, like, big sprawling estate to be, like, the lady in charge is, of course, how are you going to say no to that? Oh, absolutely. I can't even imagine. Like, suddenly you're, you know, you go from working for this rich American to you're the one running the estate and having to choose the maids and all of the stuff that, you know, you weren't trained, you know, from birth to do. It'll be crazy. And I, I do get that. Cause I mean, it's a lot like when you haven't been in that and I, we see that a lot of her issues are that she doesn't feel comfortable. I mean, we never learn her name cause she just kind of goes by like Mrs. De Winter. And then I love that scene where like, Mrs. Danvers calls her and asks to speak to Mrs. De Winter, and she's like, um, she died. A couple years ago, like. It's like, I was talking about you, you moron. <laughs> I just want to hug her. There's so many moments in the book, like, oh, you poor little no-named girl. Like, just, you need a hug. Like, please. She does. <laughs> she's very Enneagram 9, like, peacemaker, accommodator. Very much. <laughs> Oh, we have to talk about Mrs. Danvers. I'm so excited to see Kristen Scott play her toast. Kristen Scott Thomas play her. Oh, I'm so, so excited about that. Like, I feel bad saying she's like my favorite person, but she's just like a character. She just, she gives zero. Yeah, well, I mean, she, well, going into the story, we learned like she loved the first Mrs. De Winter and like maybe to an unhealthy degree. We don't really know what the degree of like love she had for her infatuation. But she is not happy with this like second Mrs. De Winter and she's like constantly telling her that the first Mrs. De Winter did it better. She's never gonna be able to fill her shoes. And then what I think is the most like horrifying scene. This is like the scene where I was like, what is happening? Like what am I reading? Is when she's trying to get her to jump out the window. Oh, after the after the masquerade, yeah, after the masquerade. Yeah, we have the masquerade. Oh my gosh, (laughs) that that's that like and and when you think she like I I like I kept thinking I was like how is she going to get out of this seat like she's gonna have to jump like I feel like as a character like had the shipwreck and all of that stuff like not distracted them like that's how the book would have ended (laughs) like she's so mousy and just goes along with the flow and everything like I feel like we needed that shipwreck (laughs) to come along right there because I think she probably would have oh I I probably should you know oh that was horrifying (laughs) yes so yeah she was saved by plot but yeah before then we have that big masquerade ball where of course mrs danvers is suddenly like really helpful and like oh you know what maxim would really like is uh if you wore this to look like this portrait of his (laughs) it just happens to be hanging right there (laughs) that you see every day (laughs) (laughs) just throwing it out there and mrs and yeah unnamed narrator's like 
okay. Like, if you think it's going to make him happy, I guess. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, going into it, I was like, I don't know what she's doing, but I'm going to say don't do it. Just have a bad feeling about it. I would not trust Mrs. Danvers. She has not given you any reason to think she's on your side right now. No, there's, like, no one's going to flip that quickly. <laughs> And yeah, we learned that that was Rebecca's dress and like Maxim is like horrified and looks like he's like seen a ghost. And yeah, we alluded to it earlier, but Maxim is a piece of crap. Like, I'm just not. Such, yes. And like the, okay, I have a theory. It's it's like oh, not, there's zero evidence that supports my theory, but it happens so conveniently since we're spoilering. Um, so we have the inquest and to, to, they find Rebecca's body and we've got the inquest and everything. And the doctor that shows up that clears Maxim's name, he was so paid off like that. I don't buy the cancer and the, the weird misshapen uterus. Like, that was all so convenient. <laughs> I really don't, I, like, I think Maxim just killed her. Like, and is they like, didn't want to get caught and, like, made, like, when Favel, Favel, however you say his name, um, shows up, like, I really, truly believe that Maxim just paid off a doctor to be like, wait, no, she had cancer. It was like, it's cool. I didn't really murder her. It was like assisted suicide, kind of, in a weird way. Like, that, it was very convenient. <laughs> yeah, there's like a few. So do you think she was actually pregnant? I think she was like I don't I don't buy the whole like everything the doctor said like it would just everything was like oh look at this nice little bow yeah, we've tied up neatly and I think I think Maxim paid him off because he's got all this money like he can go around doing that kind of nefarious back door dealing whatever stuff and I don't know that's that's my theory on Maxim I think he really he he killed her and like she was pregnant I don't know if I, I haven't decided if, if it was actually the cousin's baby, which is gross in and of itself. Um, but the, the Jack Favell's, I don't know if it was his, maybe Maxim didn't want to send. I don't know. I'm, I'm torn on the whole thing. <laughs> but I don't, I don't think the doctor was necessarily telling the truth. That's interesting. Yeah, I just, I remember just being caught so off guard. Like that to me was like the plot twist of all plot twists. I'm like, I'm sorry, what? Like what is going on? Um because then there's the narrative that if she did have cancer, that, like, even in her death, like, she had control over him. Like, she goaded him. Like, his narrative is, like, she did this to him. Like, she made him kill her. And we have, like, the Mrs. Danvers line that she wouldn't want, like, a long, drawn-out death. Like, this is how she would have wanted to go. So, so like, I feel like, like, as much as we know about Rebecca, which, I mean, you know, is limited to Maxim and, and Mrs. Danvers versions of her. Like, I feel like if she did have this grandmaster plot to have the husband kill her and she had that last hand and last laugh or whatever, there would have been a note, like, ha ha ha, from the dead, or like, you know, some 1930s version of, of the, the VHS tape, like, oh, I've called you all here because I'm dead, you know, <laughs> this year I'm dead, and ha ha, I got the last laugh. Like, I feel like she would have been taunting him in death more than she would have, which I, I don't, I like... I feel like his character is so he just does whatever he wants and he gets whatever he wants. And like, obviously, if he goes to jail for murder, <laughs> he can't keep doing that. And like, he still, you know, is married to the second Mrs. De Winters and wants her on his side. And so I feel like a lot of people were paid off somewhere, <laughs> somewhere, somehow. Okay. What were your feelings the when you read it and the second Mrs. De Winters, like, 
oh, so you don't like her anymore? You actually like me? <laughs> like, that's the happy ending. It was like, anyway, she's gone now. <laughs> I, oh, that poor girl. <laughs> Uh, she just she needs hugs like that's what <laughs> such a, the whole book she just needs one big hug I wasn't a bit like as much as I love I love the book like it's so good and brilliant and gothic and everything that is good and wonderful but yeah I, I just she was very hard to relate to in so many instances and that was one of them it was just like no honey like you were so much better than this like get away from him and just no <laughs> Yeah. And the the epilogue that that is sometimes not included in the book. Oh, it just irritated me <laughs> reading it. It's like I, I like um and so in the original ending we see Manderley going up in ashes and that's it. Um and then there was the epilogue that she wrote later that is actually it's a good chunk of what the first chapter is um or maybe it's the second chapter, but when she's talking about, like, their life after Mandalay, and, you know, she reads the paper to him, but they can only talk about cricket scores, because if she talks about woodland flowers, then he gets really upset, because Mandalay had all those woodland flowers, or whatever, and so the, the epilogue that she wrote after was, like, it's very, um, it's, it's, just like, their life after, and it's still just so sad, like, she's just catering to, Everything like I don't, I'm not sure how many years have passed in that, but it's she. I don't. She ever goes out of that, which was just very heartbreaking to read. Like at some point, you'd think she would be like growing into her own person and have more self confidence and who she is and what she deserves in life. But it just didn't seem like that happened, and it was just like, oh, honey, <laughs> poor little underbelly. <laughs> I know, and like there are points where I do feel bad for her like she's coming into this marriage I mean just like you know the second wife like there are things that haunt that relationship for one like the the memory of her and how she would have done things is always gonna be there very much so (laughs) and so like I do feel for her there and as we mentioned like she was not of like noble birth so like coming in all of a sudden like Mrs. Danvers wants like her answers for like what to do with this she doesn't know how to make these decisions like this is not something that she's used to she's more used to being in like Mrs. Danvers position than anything. Oh yeah and like when she the the lady's maid moment where she's like oh well you need to do that it was like but she was the lady's maid like two weeks ago and now she's hiring <laughs> one like how like what a mind flip <laughs> they're two ends of the extreme like she's just like so mousy she is unnamed she has no self-worth no like so she's a very unhealthy Enneagram 9 like to the point where she lets someone else's like identity overshadow her like she doesn't even take up an identity for herself yeah well and then the the one moment where she tries to I was so I was like yes put those flowers and the like the vase of flowers on the thing yes you put that in there it's your office do whatever oh the cupid broke like <laughs> like the second the one time she tries to like assert herself she breaks something and like goes back to that it's just it reinforces like Rebecca's presence is going to be here no matter what I do. That was just, oh, that was so sad. Is that the one where they start blaming the other help and she finally has to be like, I did it. Actually, it was me. <laughs> like, oh, why didn't you say something to begin with? Like, well, obviously, <laughs> we see the reaction. <laughs> Trying to avoid that. Oh, I read something that reminded me of your theory. That is, yeah, like what we get from Rebecca being quote unquote like 
evil is all from Maxim. So he is the person that is like full on controlling this narrative mm-hmm. of, of what she was. Because Mrs. Danvers is like obsessed with her. Everyone seems to have been like absolutely obsessed with her. And yeah, that we could do no wrong. <laughs> and then, yeah, his narrative is like she just wanted everyone to think she was perfect and we had a perfect relationship, but it wasn't true. Yeah. <laughs> so I read some stuff. I don't know if you had heard this about um, Daphne du Maurier's sexuality. I saw your 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 note about that, and I was I was curious because I haven't like I don't know I know um, a little bit of like her background, and I know that she based Manderley on you know an actual English estate, but like past that, I don't know much about her life at all. And so I was I was intrigued by all of this. <laughs> <laughs> I read a little bit on um, Sadie Doyle's book dead blondes and bad mothers and then i listened to like a few podcasts that went into things and she was married to an officer and like they both kind of stepped out on the marriage but like she's gone out and said like they did have a good relationship but it's said that she had affairs with women now her children deny this but there's a lot of letters that her family gave to a biographer that seemed to say the opposite that she very much did have relationships with women and she always said her father wanted her to be a boy and she talked about this other personality that was loud and brash which I think we kind of see in her portrayal of Rebecca because Mrs. Danvers describes her as like she had all the courage and spirit of a boy she ought to have been a boy Mm -hmm. that's interesting as a writer like I love putting different aspects of personalities into characters and stuff and like you know kind of crafting different characters the way that I would like to see myself then I can see it like play it on the page and then I don't actually have to be it myself you know in in the real world or whatever like that's I love that idea (laughs) I would love to see the letters (laughs) (laughs) yeah I definitely want to look some up um so from Sadie Doyle's book a little snippet on like the gothic and specifically on Rebecca we are getting everything from Maxim's point of view and Yes, it does seem that maybe Daphne du Maurier is like two sides, like the the loud, brash personality that she was trying to tone down was Rebecca. And then the second Mrs. de Winter is kind of what she felt that she should be. And so it's just kind of her working through some stuff, possibly. She's not here to talk about herself. Like, I am just <laughs> throwing off. Um, but in Sadie Doyle's book, they said... Uh, Rebecca's unrepentant sexuality, too big for her marriage, for any one man for any one gender, for the world, renders her a malevolent, almost supernatural force. She could never truly be anyone's wife. She had to be killed, lest she profane the very concept of marriage. And that I said is from Sadie Doyle's book, Dead Blondes and Bad Mothers, Monstrosity, Patriarchy, and the Fear of Female Power. I need to get that on my reading list. (laughs) That sounds really, really good. It's really interesting. So yeah, it's it's separated into like uh, daughters, mothers wives and then kind of going into different pop culture and like how those are represented as the evil like she even goes into like jurassic park and like the female dinosaurs like it's all just little like pop oh my gosh i love that (laughs) oh i'm adding that to my list for sure (laughs) and then we have from an actual letter that she wrote to ellen doubleday who was rumored to have been someone that she was flirty with (laughs) she writes It's people like me who have careers who have really gone and bitched up the old relationship between men and women. Women ought to be soft, gentle, and dependent. Disembodied spirits like myself are all wrong. Oh, that's such a sad thing to hear. It is. Everyone needs hugs. Like, everyone in this whole story. (laughs) Like, for everyone. (laughs) Except Maxim. (laughs) Yeah. 
yeah, whoever Maxim was, like, you can go away. But yeah, everyone needs everyone else. Big hugs. You'll all be good. Poor, poor Daffy. <laughs> oh, I hate that she felt that way. <laughs> it is. It is a weird like. I mean, especially, like, with all the pandemic stuff and, like, people staying at home and suddenly, you know, like, seeing different aspects. Like, I feel like a lot of stay-at-home and stay-at-home working moms and stuff with, like, I can see how she would feel that way. And it makes me sad that she does because I think there's ways you can work through that and not have that mindset. But I, I having, like, like in the world we're living in right now, um, can, I can see how she would feel. Like, it, it seems like I used to keep seeing all these articles about how, you know, the, the moms that are having to work from home plus take care of the kids and, oh, wait, oh, now we've got online schooling that they're responsible for. And, like, you very rarely ever see, you know, oh, the dad's, you know, helping set up all the online classrooms and all. Like, I, I can... Yeah, obviously <laughs> that that stereotype exists for a reason um and why she felt that 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 is incredibly sad that she she did because she is such a prolific writer too like i mean how many novels it was like i can't remember what that her, her the last count how many books she wrote but like she was a prolific writer she became a dame <laughs> with all of her literary accomplishment and to still feel that way that that was making her less of a or like not the right type of woman <laughs> that's just it is really sad, yeah. But it's interesting if the second Mrs. De Winter is supposed to be her idea of what she should be, because she is. It also seems maybe kind of snarky if she's like, "Oh, so I'm just supposed to be someone who like doesn't even have a personality, who just isn't anyone, and just goes with the throw." I love that she never gets a name. Like, it's so sad for the narrator. <laughs> but like, it's such a statement. She doesn't even like warrant her own name. She's just a part of Maxim. You know, like it's just his property and. Especially when he and he talks about like the different like he makes all those little side comments about the way she looks and like he doesn't want her his wife. And um, I just saw that the PBS uh, masterpiece theater with Charles Dance as Maxim, which oh middle aged Charles Dance like whoa, <laughs> she's so much better than Ty- Ty- Tywin Lannister <laughs> portrayal. But um, there's the one scene where after um, it, it's not I don't think it was. I don't think it's in the book, but it's like after they're, I guess they're on their honeymoon or whatever, sailing back to Mandalay, and she decides to like try. She tries on um it, the it's Emily Amelia Fox plays um the second Mrs. De Winters in it, um and she's got you know the bobbed flapper hair and everything, but it's always been very plain, and so she goes to the salon for like one of their big dinner nights out or something on the cruise ship back and. Like, she comes to the table, and she looks like this beautiful, you know, 1920s, late, early, you know, flapper-ass type beauty, and he's like, what are you wearing? Like, get that off. You look like a clown. Like, he's even controlling, like, what it is she, and then obviously we see it in the, the masquerade. He can't even see, stand to see her in, you know, his former wife's dress. Um, but like to have that much control over, like you can't wear that shade of lipstick. It makes me look like, you know, ridiculous for marrying you. Like, I can't fathom my husband being like, oh my gosh, that state of lipstick. I'm calling off the marriage. Like, uh, Maxim. (laughs) It's all about him. Yep. And then I haven't reread it in, like, since I read it the first time. I haven't gone back. But uh, in that Dead Blondes and Bad Mothers book, like, when she's talking about the plot, she says he doesn't even say that he loves her until they've been married for three months. And that's, like, a big thing where she's like, he does love me. He said it. I'm like, you're married. <laughs> <laughs> like, wasn't that a clue? <laughs> you like me, like me? Like all those memes. 
It's like, yeah, I'm married to. <laughs> Me passing it to my husband. <laughs> have you seen the Hitchcock adaptation? I haven't. I okay, keep I have it, like if I need to see it before the Netflix. Like I'm, I'm not sure how like Rebecca Mania I want to go before that, but I'm so excited. But the, I saw the PBS one recently again, and like um, Diana Riggs plays Mrs. Danvers, which you need to watch it just for that. Like it's so good. <laughs> I need to. Um, but I was listening to something that said uh, when the Hitchcock adaptation came out, the Hayes Code was fully in effect. So they had to do a rewrite on the ending because it couldn't be Maxim killed his wife because according to the Hayes Code, he would have to be punished for committing a murder. So they had to rewrite it. And everyone that has seen the Hitchcock adaptation is mad at me because I don't remember if she kills herself or like it's an accident. But it's some kind of a death where it's not his fault because under the Hayes Code, he would have had to be punished. I might, it's Sunday night. I might watch that tonight before I go. <laughs> it's interesting how many things were changed for that because um, the adaptation for the bad seed too, like in the book, the bad child lives, but under the Hayes Code, because she was evil and committed murders, she had to be punished and die oh. for being bad. That's right. I forgot about that. There's, well, yeah, and there's, um, but as uh, Les Jeux Sans Visage, like, it's, it was such a different kind of horror because it was, like, right after World War II. And so, like, they didn't want to be, like, they, they would, the whole thing was a mad scientist and, like, doing, like, face transplants on his daughter. And, um, but because of, like, all of the stuff with, like, the Germans and, and, like, all the Nazi experiments, like, they couldn't make him German and they couldn't have a show German Shepherds. Like, it was very, like, I remember that I had, a took out a horror class in college and, like, how do you do horror around those kind of constraints? It's, it was really oh, fascinating. Nice. <laughs> that sounds super fascinating. Mm-hmm. I, I loved, oh, that was my favorite class in college. I was like, <laughs> why was I not a film major? <laughs> Every class can be this fun. <laughs> Have you read or watched um, Gone Girl? Yes. <laughs> okay. I know everyone that listens to this podcast is like, well, you have not gone like two episodes without bringing up Gone Girl. And I have not. Because <laughs> everything goes back to Gilead. It does. <laughs> uh, right after it came out and everyone was like, how can we make this like comp? comp this novel to Gone Girl like if Gone Girl was underwater in space (laughs) if it's a thriller like yeah there was that whole thing where every thriller had the word girl in it yes and if it was like slightly suspense and about a marriage it's like this is the next Gone Girl like you can't do that but it's not but I yeah I I saw your note on that and I was I never contemplated like the relationship like it it feels like a very modern Rebecca in in a lot of ways (laughs) Yeah, I back like a few years ago did a YouTube video kind of doing like, if you like this classic, try this contemporary book or the other way around. I don't remember. But I put these two together and I thought I was like very original for thinking this. And then I looked up online and there's like a hundred thing pieces. And I think Gillian Gillian Flynn herself said like, Gone Girl is like, what if Rebecca was alive? Oh, see, I thought this was all you. You never should have said that. (laughs) Thank you so much. (laughs) On one hand, I did feel like really validated. I'm like, I was right. I was onto something. Well, because especially spoilers for Gone. If you listen to this podcast, Gone Girl has been spoiled for you. I'm sorry. Um, (laughs) But in the first half of the book, we kind of do get the like haunting of Rebecca because we are reading Amy's diary and that's all we get from her and kind of the ways that she is haunting nick 
from this diary and this like way that she portrayed herself and her presence and what everyone thought of her which in the first half is just great like we just get her parents like she was this perfect she was was amazing amy and it isn't until the second half where we kind of see where she is and that she did want her crappy like maxim-esque husband to be punished and tries to frame him for her murder which is kind of along the lines of rebecca if we're following the (laughs) which totally validates my theory (laughs) because like she would have left a note and like clearly (laughs) amy leaves all a whole diary and string of notes of like ha i did this look at this i own you like oh my theory is validated i like this (laughs) i'm trying to think how that works with like the cool girl monologue because amy's whole thing is like i was the cool girl like i did this i was all these things that you wanted me to be and then you pushed me into being this person and now you've kind of just left me and gone to like the shiny newer cool girl that thinks you're awesome and is like so impressed with all your little jokes and quips and stuff. So I kind of see it. I do, yeah, like because she does. She goes very much from like the Rebecca sparkling can do no wrong into what he. I can't remember her husband's name now. Um, it's Amy and Nick. Nick, that's right. Um, from what we see from Amy, like, he would probably prefer, like, second Mrs. DeWinters as a wife. Like, you fall in love with Rebecca, but then you want to go come home to, you know, unnamed character. <laughs> like, in, in his case, I wouldn't want to, because that would be boring. But, <laughs> but I'm sure Nick would, like, like you do fall in love with the Rebeccas of the world, and then, but expect them to go the other way in a lot of times. <laughs> yeah, especially, yeah, because the girl he had an affair with was his student so it was already that imbalance of power just kind of like how maxim has a title and age and it's already an imbalance of power with this like second mrs de winter mm-hmm. connecting the red thread on the <laughs> on the bulletin board like i always thought when i was getting like you know the the hazy dreamy-eyed version of what a writer would be like i always assumed i would have a giant bulletin board with like thread everywhere connected and i don't even have a whiteboard in my office (laughs) but i want one like that's the dream eventually (laughs) write something that requires the red thread (laughs) that would be fun i think i would get like overwhelmed and have too many like plot holes i feel like that's hard like you got to like go back and then fix stuff that you said anyway my gosh yeah when when i was doing house of salt and sorrows like the version that we well i had my initial version that that you know went to my agent and we revised it two or three or four times before we sent it out on sub and then like during the first revision after it had been acquired by Delacorte, um, the Fisher character never existed before that moment. And so we were like, we need to like throw in some more red herrings. Like, let's create this boy out of nowhere and like stick him into the plot. And I was like, oh, that, that's that's a that's a big, <laughs> like you didn't even, I had nothing to do with him before. And suddenly we've got to like hinge all these things off of him. It was <laughs> I, I definitely I was a stage manager before I had my daughter and so like I'm very used to writing you know reading a play and doing like French scenes and stuff where you know like so-and-so is an act one and scene here but we're talking about so-and-so over here they're in a garden you know whatever and so like I always try to do that with the books just so it's like if we do have to like insert a Fisher at some point <laughs> it's like okay well he can come in in this scene and that scene and that scene but we have to refer to him over here but he's over really in this location and it's oh it's a mess <laughs> That's fascinating. So for like stage plays and stuff, stage productions, that's awesome. Yeah, it helps a lot when like the directors are like, you know, 
let's call, we're going to rehearse scene eight. <laughs> and it's like, okay, well, who do we need for that? And you just go through really quickly and check, oh, X, Y, Z, and call them to rehearsal. <laughs> oh, I had another thing that Rebecca reminded me of. Have you read or watched Gerald's Game? I read it back in high school in this, the, my early Stephen King phase. And I remember parts of it, but not as well as I should have. And I think I started watching the Netflix thing, but it was like, it came out right as my daughter was like, she wasn't necessarily in like the newborn phase where I could like watch anything and not feel guilty. <laughs> like she was just starting to pay attention to what was on the TV screen. So I was like, maybe this isn't a movie I should finish watching in front of her. And then I don't think I ever went back to it now that I think about it. <laughs> <laughs> I had a lot of shows, but I, I never finished the end of it. <laughs> oh, I, <laughs> I feel you on that. Like my son is six and there's a lot of stuff that I, he's like very sensitive too. like stuff can have not high stakes even like some disney stuff like he cannot handle things that are high stakes like the stakes need to be very low no one needs to be in like actual danger at any time when she when my daughter was really little we were i was binging because i it was the first time i'd ever like done the whole stay at home thing like it always worked a lot you know before I had her and the stage management schedule is not good with a newborn and so I decided to go on a hiatus and, and work from home um with writing and everything and we were binging face off the the where they like they do all the prosthetics for the monsters and stuff and so like I didn't like it never occurred to me like maybe the, these are scary images <laughs> child to see but she loved it like the makeup and like the before and afters and stuff and I remember we were at I think it was her second Halloween we had gone to like Lowe's to pick up some like rakes or whatever for the yard and um I was looking at down at something and she kept saying mama mama look there's a puppy he's so cute look at the puppy and like I was just like kind of you know whatever you know, like it's a service dog or something and I was trying to like price check something <laughs> And I look up and it's this horrible, like, full life-size werewolf with, like, the plaid shirt and, like, blood dripping and claws and everything. It's just, look at the puppy. He's so cute. Oh, he's so cute. Hi, puppy. I was just like, oh, that is my daughter. <laughs> that is absolutely my daughter right there. <laughs> but, yeah, she doesn't, she's very fearless. And I wonder if it's, if she watched too many episodes to face off as a child. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, my son is uh, very much the opposite. I tried to watch Jurassic Park with him because he's six and he likes dinosaurs. Um, the, the scene where the T-Rex comes out and the two Jeeps are stranded in the storm. We did not make it very far into that scene. Those stakes were way too high. <laughs> where is the goat? <laughs> well, even when the movie starts, when they're transporting and you see like the hand and the hand like gets sucked in. My son was like, what happened to him? And I was like, don't, don't worry about it. He's fine. He's fine. <laughs> Have you, there is a, um, it's the Jurassic World, but it's like the Lego version. And so like Indominus Rex just like eats a bunch of hot dogs. <laughs> and like, that's his thing. He just wants to go around the park eating hot dogs. It's really cute. Like this has nothing to do with books in, in the freezer. <laughs> but it's super cute. Like, like Tiny Craig loves that. Oh. <laughs> I might have to try that. Yeah, because it's just no actual danger can befall any, like, character. <laughs> just the hot dogs. Just the hot dogs. <laughs> oh, man. Anyway, that got... <laughs> <laughs> Suddenly it becomes a Jurassic Park theme. <laughs> 
dark Rebecca gone girl it all it all it all, it all bleeds <laughs> oh and Gerald's game but what I was thinking was you know how when she's in the bed and she's kind of trying to think of how she's going to get out of her situation she has like the two sides of her like the two characters that voice the different opinions so she has like goody good wife and then her old roommate Ruth who is a little more of a feminist and kind of pushed her to like get out of her bubble and like face her trauma and then the good wife was kind of like what she thought society needed her to be which was like docile and subservient so I kind of see that in Rebecca like the two the two extremes not that Ruth is an extreme but the other side of that coin (laughs) so that was just something that I thought of I'm going to rewatch that eventually. <laughs> well, in the movie, it's not good wife. It's her husband, which is like, that's, oh, huh. which I mean, like, at least they gave that actor something to do. <laughs> that even like takes even further, like with the Maxim controlling what, like his, like his image of what she's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Ooh, that takes it even further. Huh? Yeah. It was an interesting choice. I'm like, okay, I see that. Like I said, I think. I mean, other than that, the actor would have just, like, been in one scene. <laughs> There's this foot. <laughs> Did you say you had watched the trailer yet or that you're going in completely blind? I have seen the trailer. Yes. Okay. I love it. And the, the only thing I am slightly worried about is, like, that little, like, the last 10 seconds of it where, like, I've only watched it on my phone, so, like, obviously I have not seen, like, the big spectacular TV-sized version of it, but it looked like there's, like, a hint of a ghost that disappears, there's a door closing, maybe I missaw it on my phone, (laughs) but I'm hoping that it doesn't go, like, true ghost haunting, like, I like that it's the psychological thriller horror of it more than, like, this is an actual ghost, even though when I first read it, I was like, where are the ghosts, (laughs) but now... (laughs) Older Aaron is as a as a more sharpened <laughs> palette for horror. <laughs> I think like when I watched it, I'm like, there's a lot of Monte Carlo in this, and like I don't not remember that being in the book, but that could just be that they don't want to give much away, mm-hmm. that they want to like set the scene. <laughs> yeah, and I'm, oh. I love the idea of Lily James as as little no name. <laughs> like I think she'll be. I think that'll be really fun. I was surprised at um what's his name the the Maxim. Army Hammer. Yes. I, like, because in the book, did we ever find out he's he's in his 40s, late 40s, early 40s, something in the book? Like, <laughs> like, it seemed like he's too close to Lily James' age. I, I have, fully admit, I haven't seen him in anything since Gossip Girl, so maybe he aged <laughs> some since then. <laughs> but he seems very boyish in the trailer, and, like, I liked having, like, with the Charles Dance and, um, and Amelia Fox at the, in the PBS one, like, it's such, it, like, he, he would think it was, like, late 50s, maybe, maybe early 60s. Like, it was, it was much more almost Lolita-esque um, in that. But I liked yeah. having the, the older, like, visibly older, quite, a, or, you know, considerably older, like, the dynamic seems. Because that, that does play a part. In their relationship that's like why you would not like it gives her a little more reasoning on like why she is so mousy and deferential like well you know this guy is so much older than me he knows all the ways of the estate and like mm-hmm. it makes sense why mm-hmm. she wouldn't ever really object to anything he does even murdering his wife because <laughs> yeah. it was explained but like the the age discrepancy like that's the only thing i'm, I'm slightly concerned about with this one is just if they yeah. feel too close in age, like, why is she going along with all of this? <laughs> I forgot Army Hammer was in Gossip Girl. 
It's, it's like not many episodes, but yeah, he was, he was impressionable. <laughs> it was funny because I was like talking to my husband and it's always that thing where like I mentioned an actor and he's like, but what do I know him from? And I'm like, call me by your name. He's like, I didn't see that. And I'm like, um, this. And I'm like, he was the Winklevoss twins on social network. And he's like, okay, like that. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I know him from. It's weird because he's also, also he's an American actor. Is he really? I think so. All right. So what can you tell us what you are working on next? Um, so I have a very not normal Aaron Craig book or a short story coming out in an anthology um, October 20th this year. Um, it's uh, my short story and it's called Love Delivered. Um, and it's in a in the Together Apart anthology um, that Delacorte's putting out and it's like happy contemporary short stories. <laughs> so obviously Aaron Craig. Um, uh, set in a time of COVID. And so it's all of these teenagers finding their meat cute while they're on lockdown and quarantine. Um, and like every story in it is so happy and hopeful and lovely. And like, they're like, obviously there's a pandemic going on, but like no one's dying and like falling down staircases and things. <laughs> so it's very like 180 from, from House of Salt and Sorrows, but I love it. It's really cute. And um, there's a ton of really awesome authors who are also in the anthology. Um, so that's coming out October 20th uh, from Delacorte. And then next year, um, August 3rd, I have um, my next full-size book, um, Small Favors. Uh, it's a very loose retelling of the Rumpelstiltskin story um, set in America um, in Colorado and like loosely 1860s and I've been calling it kind of calling it um, needful things meets the village because it's got a lot of really creamy Emmett Shyamalan vibes to it (laughs) I like that it's fun (laughs) so and then uh, I'm working on some other projects and hopefully something will come of that soon (laughs) sounds awesome well as is Brooks in the Freezer tradition what is something you are enjoying in horror now like a chilling obsession um, I, well, we just finished the, um, I'll be gone in the dark series, the HBO broadcast, um, which I enjoy is such a strange word <laughs> to yeah. say about that, but my gosh, that was well done. Like, um, the book is obviously wonderful and Michelle McNamara's thing. I love seeing, um, her story and like all of the awful aftermath of everything, like getting to see that, um, and the relation to like the actual golden state killer case and everything as she was investigating it and like knowing how that played out for her. Like it was, Oh, that was so good. Um, I really, really love that. Um, it's more true crime than, than horror, I guess. But, um, I'm also reading, um, I'm doing a bunch of, like, I, I try to theme my reading <laughs> um, and plan it out kind of for, for spooky season. And so I've been re- I'm going to start reading a lot of um, kind of talking with the dead type stuff this, this season. Um, I've got, what is on my shelf? Uh, the Vespertine by Sandra Mitchell. And then uh, Prelude for Lost Souls, which just came out. It's by Helene Dunbar. Um, and it's all, one's a uh, very period table knocking type communicating with the spirits uh stuff and then the prelude for lost souls is actually contemporary and i i don't know this for certain i could be speaking out of turn but there's a um, town in upstate new york where like a lot of spiritualism people end up kind of like they all live there there was some documentary and hbo and the name is eluding me (laughs) um 
but this is kind of set in a town like that where there's a lot of spiritualists and mediums and things like that and um somehow this teenager communicates with music or the ghost communicates with music. I haven't read it yet, <laughs> but it sounds really good. Um, so I'm, that's, that's my new uh, theme for, for the month of October. <laughs> well, that sounds fun. Yeah. For horror readers, it's like that October TBR has to be perfect. <laughs> Got to curate it. Oh yeah. Um, and as is new books in the freezer tradition, what is your final girl song? final girl song huh? oh I don't know <laughs> what's yours huh? <laughs> <As an example. laughs> like I feel like all the ones that I pick are like more funny I think like a fighting back song that would be like really funny would be like Dolly Parton's nine to five <laughs> <gasps> I love that <laughs> um I'm trying to think I'm, I'm really terrible with music I I just had a a school class visit the other day and they were asking for the playlist for House of Salt and Sorrows and I was like well actually I wrote it while my daughter was like a baby and sleeping on me so it was in silence and they're like oh and I was like yeah <laughs> and they're like well if you had to make a playlist I was like silence is good <laughs> um I actually I've been really enjoying I um so I'm a bit of a, a Luddite I've got uh, I love typewriters and, and record players and stuff and I just got the Haunting of Hill House soundtrack on vinyl and it's this glorious like mottled green and navy vinyl like the, the record itself and it looks like ghosts are coming out of it. I love it um I've been listening to that a lot so maybe the the Haunting of Hill House theme song that's such not a final girl song Aaron that's a terrible answer <laughs> i'm gonna stick with it <laughs> it can be whatever tone you want it to be it's your vibes <laughs> it's your movie <laughs> it, that it, yeah because i like at the end of the movie like i like sitting in the dark and like re- like listening to the things resonate i'm gonna go with that <laughs> okay. lots of ominous tones <laughs> i will add it to the playlist excellent (laughs) thank you so much for coming on here to talk with me about rebecca thank you this was so much fun (laughs) we should set up like a watch party (laughs) oh yeah have like a big virtual (laughs) that would be fun (laughs) in real time all right well thank you again oh where can people find you online Oh, uh, I am at AaronACraig.com for my website. And then um, all my social media is penchant, uh, the number four words. So it's penchant for words. Um, and I'm on Twitter, lots of Pinterest, um, Instagram, <laughs> Facebook. <laughs> well, we will check you out and thank you again for coming on. Thank you. <laughs> Books in the Freezer is a bi-weekly podcast. We post episodes every other Tuesday. You can find us on Twitter at Books Freezer Pod, on Instagram at Books in the Freezer, on Facebook at facebook.com slash books in the freezer. You can send us an email at books in the freezer at gmail.com. Show notes for this episode and all previous episodes are at books in the freezer.com. We are also on Patreon at books in the freezer. Another way to support the show is our Amazon link, which will be in the show notes. And that's just doing your basic, like what you would normally get at Amazon. But you don't have to spend any money to support the show. Word of mouth is a great way to support the show and help the podcast grow, let people know about it. And of course, leaving a rating on something like Apple Podcasts is huge and a big boost to ratings and visibility. So thank you to all of you that have taken your time to do that. 
I'm Stephanie. You can find me on Twitter at Lady underscore Ganya. That's L-A-D-Y underscore G-A-G-N-O-N. On Instagram at That's What She Read. That's That's with two A's. And on YouTube as That's What She Read. So join us next time for Books in the Freezer.